how many people, show of hands, have heard of the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect? Oh, one? Maybe two? Uh, it's an effect that compares uh, the amount of knowledge you have on a particular topic to your self-confidence in your knowledge on that particular topic. And if you've never heard of it, that's okay, you've probably all experienced it. And it looks something like this. And so, as you can see, we are comparing the knowledge you have on a particular topic with the self-confidence you have in that particular topic. And when you have a little bit of knowledge, not none, but a little bit of knowledge, you're usually oblivious to the full complexities of the topic at hand, and you almost don't know, you're not even aware of all the things that you still don't know, and so what that can yield is someone that knows a little, but is very confident in what they know, uh, which, not my words, but what they refer to as the peak of Mount Stupid. Um, again, not my words. But then, as you journey the journey of learning and knowledge, you become aware of the full complexities of the topic at hand, and your eyes are open to the things that you didn't even know you don't know. And so while your knowledge is increasing, your confidence in your knowledge uh, plummets to a point they call the valley of despair. And as you continue to journey on this journey of learning and knowledge, uh, and you start to work out some of the complexities, uh, yes, your knowledge grows, but your confidence then begins to resurface until the point or the plateau of sustainability, which sometimes is never quite as high as your co the confidence you had when you uh, summited Mount Stupid. Um, now, the reason I share this with you this morning uh, is because we've arrived at Jonah chapter 3 in our series working through uh, the book of Jonah. If you're new with us this morning, that's what we've been doing the last number of weeks. And as I spent time studying uh, Jonah chapter 3, I realized that for most of my life, I have been camping out on the summit of Mount Stupid. Um, and I found myself plummeting into the valley of despair, uh, not because what we're presented with in Jonah chapter 3 is overly complicated or technical or confusing, but because I realized that there are so many questions that we are presented with in Jonah chapter 3 that I had never thought to ask before. And not only is there just a lot of questions I never thought to ask, I realized that while you can work with these questions and try to infer some answers, because of the lack of information we're provided, you, can, you can't even really hold with absolute certainty whatever conclusions you do come to. And so, I say this because as we work through the text this morning, and as we ask some of those questions that maybe you've never asked before, there's a chance that you have a similar experience to I, uh, in that you find yourself plummeting into the valley of despair. And so if you find yourself, I'm prefacing this, if you, if you find yourself experiencing that this morning, there's two things I want you to remember. Number one, don't be discouraged. Because if you find yourself plummeting, that is just part of the journey of learning, right? You can't reach the plateau of sustainability unless you go through that valley of despair. But secondly, and definitely most importantly, uh, while there's a lot of things in Jonah chapter 3 that we, we can't be 100% certain of, there is one thing that we definitely can be certain of. You just have to wait until the end. And so stay 
with me. Don't lose heart because the certainty we will find at the end of this passage will certainly overshadow all the uncertainty we find at the beginning and throughout most of what we see in Jonah chapter 3. So, let's get into it. If you have a Bible, Jonah chapter 3 is where we're at. And um, the narrative flow of Jonah 3 is interesting because there's not a lot of dialogue back and forth between characters. It's more one character uh, has kind of his time in the spotlight or in center stage and then he takes a back step to the next character coming in and having his moment or their moment. And so really it begins with God saying something and then Jonah responding and then the Ninevites have their time in the spotlight and we finish with uh, one final verse on, with God kind of at the forefront of the passage. And so the easiest way to work through this is just take it in stages. And so we'll begin with the first couple verses, uh, the God part. And so in these opening verses, Jonah's story gets a fresh new start. Uh, just like the opening chapter, uh, God presents himself to Jonah and he asks Jonah to go to Nineveh to quote call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, what is this message? We don't know at this point. All we know that it involves calling out against Nineveh. And we know from chapter 1 that it has something to do with the evil that Nineveh had been engaging in. And so that's what we're presented with in those opening verses, uh, to which God then takes a back seat in the narrative, and we see how Jonah responds. And so Jonah, in hearing the word of God, he listens this time. Way to go, Jonah. Um, and moving on into verse 3, we're right after it says Jonah, he listens and he goes, we're, we're given this detail in verse 3, where it says that in order to make the journey either around or through, Nineveh in its entirety, it takes how many days? Three days. We're then told right after that Jonah only goes one day's journey into the city. Why would the author tell us that? Probably not for no reason. Now, is he communicating that Jonah got lazy and was giving the bare minimum effort? Was he communicating that Jonah's message was so well received that he didn't have to keep going? Or was he communicating that Jonah saw how the Ninevites were responding and it wasn't what he was anticipating or hoping for, and so he calls it quits? Now, I could give you some of my thoughts on those questions, but as I said at the start, we can't really be 100% certain. Next, we're told uh, of the, the message that Jonah actually delivered, this five-word sermon that Jonah proclaimed in his one-day journey, where he says in verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, uh, before you tell me I can't count, I know that's more than five words in English. In Hebrew, it's only five words. <laughs> Why is his message so short? Why doesn't he mention what, what Nineveh is guilty of? Why doesn't he present a way out of God's judgment when, based on what happens in the story, we know that's a viable option. Uh, Jonah doesn't present that option. Why doesn't Jonah mention God? 
No, no mention of God in this passage or in this message. And all these details, they're details you find elsewhere in the Bible when God sends a prophet to a people to proclaim judgment upon them. Uh, but those details are nowhere to be found in Jonah's message. And I would say, based on the skepticism that we have accumulated for the character of Jonah thus far, it kind of has to force you to ask the question, was this actually the message that God gave to Jonah to deliver? Was it? Or was it some version of the message that God gave Jonah to deliver, where Jonah maybe, or maybe not, removed some details out of it? I have my own thoughts, but realistically... We can't really be that certain. Here's another one. Why doesn't Jonah elaborate on what he means by overthrown? My translation says overthrown. Uh, some translations say uh, turn over or destroyed. The Hebrew word that he's using there is the Hebrew word hafak. Now, sometimes in the Bible, that word is used to mean destroy. Like the story, if we're familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the word that's used to describe what happens to the city. Other times in the Bible, it can be used for a word to mean something that's turned over or changed or transformed. For example, in Psalm 30, it says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. The word there for turned is the same word, hafak. For Samuel 10, it says, then the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Now, destroyed and changed or transformed are two very different things. Yet, in the Hebrew, it's the same word being used in both situations. And so, why doesn't Jonah clarify what he means by this? Because clearly you can tell by the narrative that uh, the Ninevites understood it as destroyed, for sure. But when you consider what actually takes place in that you have this people that actually gets transformed into a new kind of people through their repentance, both uses of the word are at, at least at play here in some capacity. But what was Jonah's intention when he was communicating? There's so much ambiguity here that I just have to sit and say, we can't be that certain. I know, it's really frustrating. Moving on to the next part, the Ninevite part, where the author tells us how the Ninevites respond to Jonah's five-word sermon, and their response is probably more shocking than what we found in chapter one, where we had pagan sailors uh, fearing the Lord, where big, bad, powerful, evil Nineveh, their people, their king, and even their cows repent. They declare a fast as a means of seeking God's mercy, and they cover themselves in sackcloth, which was a symbol of repentance. And so what we have here is the Ninevites, they, they see their evil, they recognize it. They also recognize that they are under the authority of God and all they can possibly do is rely on God's compassion. If you notice the, the words of the king in verse 9, he kind of just throws up his hands and says, who knows? Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, right? These are, this is a people that, is just, that are just placing themselves at the mercy of God. Just like the rest of these sections, this too raises some questions. How does as vague a message as Jonah preached completely transform a city? Why, why did they listen to Jonah? Jonah didn't introduce himself. Did Jonah have some reputation that made them think, oh, this is probably a guy we should listen to? If Jonah didn't present repentance as an option, uh, what would have led them to repentance? I think in many ways this contributes to, you know, I've been referencing the upside-down nature of Jonah where everything that doesn't happen Everything you wouldn't expect to happen, happens. Everything that Jonah doesn't give them is what they come to discover. It's interesting. But once again, when you highlight these specific questions, you can't really be 100% certain in what you might conclude. How are we doing? Valley of despair, anyone? Um... If that's the case, uh, don't be discouraged. Again, it's part of the learning process. But as I mentioned at the start, despite the uncertainty that we have seen in abundance thus far in the chapter, there is much certainty to be found in this final section of this chapter where God steps back into the foreground. And so you'll read this in verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented. Some translations say God changed his mind regarding the disaster that he had said he would bring and do to them, and he did not do it. And so the chapter ends with God seeing a people who were deserving of death and destruction But because they chose to repent, uh, he relents, or he changes his mind concerning the destruction that he had had planned or intended or said he would do. Now, what's, what's not unique about this part of the text is that it too raises a question. Uh, Probably the biggest question yet, probably the question that is definitely most relevant to us today as we go to the story of Jonah. Does God change his mind? Is that something God does? He said he would do something, and then he didn't do it. Where is the certainty in that? That just feels like more uncertainty, as if you can't predict what God's going to do because he can just decide to change his mind. Now, that response to the question is definitely understandable, but very fortunately unnecessary. Because what, what we're being presented with here is a situation that reveals something very important about God. Something that is revealed consistently throughout the Bible. And something that doesn't have to leave us feeling uneasy or unsettled or uncertain. But something that should leave us with tremendous confidence and tremendous comfort and tremendous peace. And so, what is it? that's being revealed 
about God in verse 10. Uh, it's this. That God can change his mind based on how humans choose to respond to his word, but God himself does not change. I'm going to read that one more time. God can, he doesn't have to, but God can change his mind based on how humans choose to respond to his word, but God himself doesn't change. Allow me to unpack that briefly. God created humans out of his love, and he created us to enter into a loving relationship with him. And essential to love is choice. Without choice, without the choice to love, love is not really possible. And so because of this, God gave humans choice. They could choose to reciprocate his love by living faithfully with the vision that he presented for how he wanted them to live, or they could choose not to. See this on the opening pages of the Bible. Now, because God chose to order the world in this way, it means that he chose to work in the world out of response to the decisions that humans make, right? And this is, again, depicted on the opening pages of the Bible um, and throughout the entire Bible, right? God gives a person or a group of people a word or a vision for how he would like them to live. And then he leaves it to them to decide if they are going to live faithfully to that or not live faithfully to that. And then, based on how they choose to respond, God then responds according to how he sees fit. Um, now again, you see this throughout basically every page and every story in the Bible. And as these stories play out, the people who recorded them we're not afraid to tell us that God sometimes determines his course of action or even redetermines his course of action based on how humans choose to respond to his words. For example, the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Uh, God tells Israel that he is the only one that they are to worship and they immediately go and build a golden statue and they start worshiping it. And so God tells Moses, their leader at the time, that he was going to destroy them. And so at that point, what Moses does is Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf. And he pleads for God's mercy to not destroy the people. And because of Moses' intercession, it says, this is basically the exact words we see in Jonah, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, that's one example of it in action. I think the easiest passage of Scripture to look at that kind of presents this idea in its broadest sense and clearest sense would be in Jeremiah 18, where God says this through the prophet. He says, If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed... And if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted 
And if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. This is basically exactly what happens with Nineveh. God chooses to relent or change his mind concerning the destruction that he had planned because he is a God who sometimes will respond to human response. And so Nineveh repented, God relented. Now, there's a now. Whilst uh, the people who wrote the Bible do depict a God who is open to changing his mind based on human response, they also depict a God who does so because of his unchanging character. It's the last part of that sentence. God himself, he does not change. Uh, the Bible was written over the span of, thinking specifically Old Testament at this point, was written over the span of many, many, many years by many, many people. And the people who wrote the Bible often quote other parts of the Old Testament that were written before their parts. And so, lots of us probably know this, there's so many cross-references in the Bible where other parts of the Bible. Anyone know what the most quoted verse in the Old Testament is? The verse that, actually maybe I'll phrase that a little clearer. The most quoted verse by other Old Testament writers, right? The verse that, that the writers kept continually pointing us back to time and time and time again. A verse that Jonah himself, in chapter 4, which we'll see next week, he quotes himself. It's Exodus 34.6. Exodus 34.6, where God declares this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. That is the most quoted verse in the Bible by other Bible writers, if that makes sense. The narrative that the God of the Old Testament and New Testament are drastically different and that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, vengeful God who delights in destruction. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, it definitely does not come from someone who has sat down and read it from start to finish. Because, again, the thing and the verse that the writers of the Old Testament continually point us back to, and the thing that they want us to so desperately remember as we engage in the Scriptures is that God is compassionate, that God is gracious, that he is slow to anger, and that he abounds in not just this generic, vague idea of love, but a loyal love, and he abounds in faithfulness. And as you read the text, just the whole scriptures, you'll also see that they, they reveal that these character traits that make God God, uh, they don't change. God says very explicitly through the prophet Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. My character does not change. My desire for the good of humanity does not change. And my promises do not change. We sang that this morning. Later on in the Bible, the author of Hebrews phrases it, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, if we consider this, because God's character is one of compassion and grace and patience and loyal love and faithfulness, 
And because his character doesn't change, it yields a God who refuses to give up on the human project when he has every right to do so. A God who gives second chances when he's under absolutely no obligation to do so. And a God who is willing to extend compassion and forgiveness to the guilty and relent of the judgment that they are due if they choose to repent. I think this right here is uh, the certainty that we can cling to in Jonah chapter 3. We might never know for sure why Jonah only went one day's journey into Nineveh. Why he said the things he said, why he didn't say the things he didn't say, or why Nineveh chose to respond the way that they did. But we definitely can know for sure. And the thing that we can cling to with absolute certainty is God himself and his character. That he has always been, that he continues to be, and he always will be a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God that is slow to anger, a God who loves loyally, and a God who is eternally faithful. Amen. Amen. I'm not too sure how, I know how I feel about it, I'm not too sure how, not too sure how you guys feel about uh, the uncertainty that I clearly presented us this morning in Jonah chapter 3 with all these unanswered questions. Uh, it's my tendency to sit down, not just with the Bible, with anything. If I'm presented with something, I want to work through it and work through it and work through it and come to a perfect, clear, logical conclusion that makes everything make beautiful sense. And, yes, I know, good luck to me. Um, you can sit down with Jonah 3. We didn't do the work today. Uh, you can sit down with Jonah 3 and work through some of these questions, and there are conclusions you can come to. Once again, you just have to almost hold them with an open hand instead of a closed fist because you just can't be 100% certain based on the lack of information that we are provided. It doesn't sit easy with me. It honestly doesn't. And it's hard for me to sit up here and raise a bunch of questions and basically tell you I don't have the answer. I did find some comfort this week, though, in the words of James Bruckner in his commentary on the book of Jonah. And he writes this. He says, We miss the ongoing point of the text if we seek to resolve or remove tensions and uncertainties that readers have noticed for centuries. We're not the first ones to raise these questions. They've been raised for years and years and years. We should not smooth them out in order to make ourselves more comfortable. That's what I want to do. Rather, we should recognize our own struggle within them. We should recognize our own struggle within them. And by this, he means to say that the tensions and the uncertainties that we encounter in Jonah chapter 3 and elsewhere in the book of Jonah are not too dissimilar from the tensions and the uncertainties that we encounter every day of our life in a variety of ways based on what season of life we find ourselves living in. 
What is the best career path for me to pursue? How do I parent my children best? What do I do about my adult child that wants little or nothing to do with Jesus? Am I going to be healed of my illness? How do I handle this seemingly unhandleable conflict I find myself in at work? Where I just lost my job. How am I supposed to provide for my family financially? How do I manage all the demands of life that seem to be weighing me down oh so heavily right now? Or maybe even, how is this situation in Israel and Palestine going to unfold? How is it going to influence uh, the family members that I have living there? There's so much that we have to manage day in and day out. And often, I think we can find ourselves in a place of feeling like, I have no idea what to do. Or maybe even, I don't think there's anything I can do. I think when we find ourselves in that place, we often get very overwhelmed with the uncertainty that it presents to us. And so as I reflect on the uncertainties of Jonah 3 and the certainty of Jonah 3, I'm reminded that there is a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us through his workings with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but to an even fuller extent, maybe, I'd say, in the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospel writer John writes this in his opening words, that the Word, or you could just say God, became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. I like the way the message paraphrase, the message paraphrase paraphrases it by saying, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And later on he adds, he, Jesus, he, has revealed God to us. He has revealed God in his teachings, in his interactions that we can read about in the New Testament, and ultimately, he has revealed God in his humble submission uh, to death on the cross. Because when we look up, we have it there, sitting there, each and every week. When When we look upon that cross... What we're looking at is the ultimate revelation of God. The ultimate revelation of what makes God, God. Of his compassion, of his grace, of his patience, of his loyal love, and of his faithfulness that he has shown to us. Uh, 2,000 years ago on a cross, but also continues to show us and will forever continue to show us. And so I think as we navigate the inevitable uncertainties of life that make life life and make life really hard sometimes, uh, we do so alongside a God who we can be really certain in and really certain of because he stepped into our world to make it that way, to make that very crystal clear to us. 
And this God who chose to do that for us and on our behalf, uh, his desire is for us to turn to him in the midst of basically everything else in life that seems to be uncertain. Right? Not necessarily to make the uncertainty go away, but to bring us what the New Testament calls rest for our souls. Or as Paul phrases in Philippians 4, a peace that makes no sense. Philippians 4 in the full reads this. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. So do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation... By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Turn to Him. Depend on Him. Lean on Him. Cling to Him. Because He'll make your uncertainties and challenges go away? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Don't have that answer for you this morning. But definitely because the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, that doesn't even really make sense, but is real and it's available in Christ Jesus. And so, in light of that, I will close by saying, may we, as individual believers and as a community, learn to turn to Jesus amidst the uncertainties and the complexities of life to receive a strength and a peace that are, as Paul would say, beyond understanding, that are available but only available in him, Jesus, who is compassionate and gracious, who is slow to get angry, who is abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Why don't you pray with me?